Section 10 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1861-1868. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 10. President Andrew Johnson, December 9, 1868. Part 1. Fellow citizens of the Senate and House of Representatives, upon the reassembling of Congress it again becomes my duty to call your attention to the State of the Union and to its continued disorganized condition under the various laws which have been passed upon the subject of Reconstruction. It may be safely assumed as an axiom in the government of states that the greatest wrongs inflicted upon a people are caused by unjust and arbitrary legislation or by the unrelenting decrees of despotic rulers and that the timely revocation of injurious and oppressive measures is the greatest good that can be conferred upon a nation the legislator or ruler who has the wisdom and magnanimity to retrace his steps when convinced of error will sooner or later be rewarded with the respect and gratitude of an intelligent and patriotic people our own history although embracing a period less than a century affords abundant proof that most if not all of our domestic troubles are directly traceable to violations of organic law and excessive legislation the most striking illustrations of this fact are furnished by the enactments of the past three years upon the question of reconstruction after a fair trial they have substantially failed and proved pernicious in their results and there seems to be no good reason why they should longer remain upon the statute book states to which the constitution guarantees a republican form of government have been reduced to military dependencies in each of which the people have been made subject to the arbitrary will of the commanding general although the constitution requires that each state shall be represented in congress virginia mississippi and texas are yet excluded from the two houses and contrary to the express provisions of that instrument were denied participation in the recent election for a president and vice president of the united states the attempt to place the white population under the domination of persons of color in the south has impaired if not destroyed the kindly relations that had previously existed between them and mutual distrust has engendered a feeling of animal which leading in some instances to collision and bloodshed has prevented that cooperation between the two races so essential to the success of industrial enterprise in the southern states nor have the inhabitants of those states alone suffered from the disturbed condition of affairs growing out of these congressional enactments the entire union has been agitated by grave apprehensions of troubles which might again involve the peace of the nation its interests have been injuriously affected by the derangement of business and labor and the consequent want of prosperity throughout that portion of the country the federal constitution the magna carta of american rights under whose wise and salutary provisions we have successfully conducted all our domestic and foreign affairs sustained ourselves in peace and in war and become a great nation among the powers of the earth must assuredly be now adequate to the settlement of questions growing out of the civil war waged alone for its vindication 
this great fact is made most manifest by the condition of the country when congress assembled in the month of december eighteen sixty five civil strife had ceased the spirit of rebellion had spent its entire force in the southern states the people had warmed into national life and throughout the whole country a healthy reaction in public sentiment had taken place by the application of the simple yet effective provisions of the constitution the executive department with the voluntary aid of the states had brought the work of restoration as near completion as was within the scope of its authority and the nation was encouraged by the prospect of an early and satisfactory adjustment of all its difficulties congress however intervened and refusing to perfect the work so nearly consummated declined to admit members from the unrepresented states adopted a series of measures which arrested the progress of restoration frustrated all that had been so successfully accomplished and after three years of agitation and strife has left the country further from the attainment of union and fraternal feeling than at the inception of the congressional plan of reconstruction it needs no argument to show that legislation which has produced such baneful consequences should be abrogated or else made to conform to the genuine principles of republican government under the influence of party passion and sectional prejudice other acts have been passed not warranted by the constitution congress has already been made familiar with my views respecting the tenure of office bill experience has proved that its repeal is demanded by the best interests of the country and that while it remains in force the president cannot enjoin that rigid accountability of public officers so essential to an honest and efficient execution of the laws its revocation would enable the executive department to exercise the power of appointment and removal in accordance with the original design of the federal constitution the act of march second eighteen sixty seven making appropriations for the support of the army for the year ending june thirtieth eighteen sixty eight and for other purposes contains provisions which interfere with the president's constitutional functions as commander-in-chief of the army and deny to states of the union the right to protect themselves by means of their own militia these provisions should be at once annulled for while the first might in times of great emergency seriously embarrass the executive in efforts to employ and direct the common strength of the nation for its protection and preservation the other is contrary to the express declaration of the constitution that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed it is believed that the repeal of all such laws would be accepted by the american people as at least a partial return to the fundamental principles of the government and an indication that hereafter the constitution is to be made the nation's safe and unerring guide they can be productive of no permanent benefit to the country and should not be permitted to stand as so many monuments of the deficient wisdom which has characterized our recent legislation the condition of our finances demands the early and earnest consideration of congress compared with the growth of our population the public expenditures have reached an amount unprecedented in our history the population of the united states in seventeen ninety was nearly four million people increasing each decade about thirty three per cent it reached in eighteen sixty thirty one million an increase of seven hundred per cent on the population in seventeen ninety 
1869, it is estimated that it will reach 38 million, or an increase of 868% in 79 years. The annual expenditures of the federal government in 1791 were $4,200,000. In 1820, $18.2 million, and in 1850, $41 millions. In 1860, $63 millions. In 1865, nearly $1,300 millions. And in 1869, it is estimated by the Secretary of the Treasury in his last annual report that they will be 372 millions. By comparing the public disbursements of 1869, as estimated with those of 1791, it will be seen that the increase of expenditure since the beginning of the government has been 8,618%, while the increase of the population for the same period was only 868%. Again, the expenses of the government in 1860 the year of peace immediately preceding the war were only 63 millions, while in 1869, the year of peace three years after the war, it is estimated they will be 372 millions, an increase of 489%, while the increase in population was only 21% for the same period. These statistics further show that in 1791, the annual national expenses compared with the population were little more than $1 per capita, and in 1860, but $2 per capita, while in 1869, they will reach the extravagant sum of $9.78 per capita. It will be observed that all these statements refer to and exhibit the disbursements of peace periods. It may therefore be of interest to compare the expenditures of the three war periods, the War with Great Britain, the Mexican War, and the War of the Rebellion. In 1814, the annual expenses incident to the War of 1812 reached their highest amount, about 31 millions, while our population slightly exceeded 8 million, showing an expenditure of only $3.80 per capita. In 1847, the expenditures growing out of the war with Mexico reached 55 millions, and the population about 21 million, giving only $2.60 per capita for the war expenses of that year. In 1865, the expenditures called for by the rebellion reached the vast amount of 1,290 millions, which, compared with a population of 34 million, gives $38.20 per capita. From the 4th day of March, 1789, to the 30th of June, 1861, the entire expenditures of the government were $1.7 billion. During that period, we were engaged in wars with Great Britain and Mexico and were involved in hostilities with powerful Indian tribes. Louisiana was purchased from France at a cost of $15 million. Florida was ceded to us by Spain for $5 million. California was acquired from Mexico for $15 million, and the territory of New Mexico was obtained from Texas for the sum of $10 million. Early in 1861, the War of the Rebellion commenced, and from the 1st of July of that year to the 30th of June, 1865, the public expenditures reached the enormous aggregate of 3,300 millions. Three years of peace have intervened, 
and during that time the disbursements of the government have successfully been 520 millions, 346 millions, and 393 millions. Adding to these amounts, 372 millions, estimated as necessary for the fiscal year ending the 30th of June, 1869, we obtain a total expenditure of $1.6 billion during the four years immediately succeeding the war, or nearly as much as was expended during the 72 years that preceded the rebellion and embraced the extraordinary expenditures already named. These startling facts clearly illustrate the necessity of retrenchment in all branches of the public service. Abuses which were tolerated during the war for the preservation of the nation will not be endured by the people now that profound peace prevails. The receipts from internal revenues and customs have during the past three years gradually diminished, and the continuance of useless and extravagant expenditures will involve us in national bankruptcy, or else make inevitable an increase of taxes already too onerous and, in many respects, obnoxious on account of their inquisitorial character. One hundred millions annually are expended for the military force, a large portion of which is employed in the execution of laws both unnecessary and unconstitutional. One hundred and fifty millions are required each year to pay the interest on the public debt. An army of tax-gatherers impoverishes the nation, and public agents placed by Congress beyond the control of the executive divert from their legitimate purposes large sums of money which they collect from people in the name of the government. Judicious legislation and prudent economy can alone remedy defects and avert evils which, if suffered to exist, cannot fail to diminish confidence in the public councils and weaken the attachment and respect of the people toward their political institutions. Without proper care, the small balance which it is estimated will remain in the Treasury at the close of the present fiscal year will not be realized, and additional millions be added to a debt which is now enumerated by billions. It is shown by the able and comprehensive report of the Secretary of the Treasury that the receipts for the fiscal year ending June 30, 1868, were $405,638,083, and that the expenditures for the same period were $377,340,284, leaving in the Treasury a surplus of $28,000,000, $297,798. It is estimated that the receipts during the present fiscal year, ending June 30, 1869, will be $341,392,868, and the expenditures $336,152,470, showing a small balance of $5,240,398 in favor of the government. For the fiscal year ending June 30, 1870, it is estimated that the receipts will amount to $327 million and the expenditures to $303 million, leaving an estimated surplus of $24 million. It becomes proper, in this connection, to make a brief reference to our public indebtedness, which has accumulated with such alarming rapidity and assumed such colossal proportions. 
1789, when the government commenced operations under the federal constitution, it was burdened with an indebtedness of $75 million, created during the War of the Revolution. This amount had been reduced to $45 million when, in 1812, war was declared against Great Britain. The three-year struggle that followed largely increased the national obligations, and in 1816 they had attained the sum of $127 million. Wise and economical legislation, however, enabled the government to pay the entire amount within a period of 20 years, and the extinguishment of the national debt filled the land with rejoicing and was one of the great events of President Jackson's administration. After its redemption, a large fund remained in the Treasury, which was deposited for safekeeping with the several states, on condition that it would be returned when required by the public wants. In 1849, the year after the termination of an expensive war with Mexico, we found ourselves involved in a debt of $64 million, and this was the amount owed by the government in 1860, just prior to the outbreak of the rebellion. In the spring of 1861, our Civil War commenced. Each year of its continuance made an enormous addition to the debt, and when in the spring of 1865 the nation successfully emerged from the conflict, the obligations of the government had reached the immense sum of $2,873,992,909. The Secretary of the Treasury shows that on the first day of November, 1867, this amount had been reduced to $2,491,504,450. But, at the same time, his report exhibits an increase during the past year of $35,625,102 for the debt on the first day of November last is stated to have been $2,527,129,552. It is estimated by the Secretary that the returns for the past month will add to our liabilities the further sum of $11 million, making a total increase during 13 months of $46,500,000. In my message to Congress, December 4, 1865, it was suggested that a policy should be devised which, without being oppressive to the people, would at once begin to effect a reduction of the debt and, if persisted in, discharge it fully within a definite number of years. The Secretary of the Treasury forcibly recommends legislation of this character, and justly urges that the longer it is deferred, the more difficult must become its accomplishment. We should follow the wise precedents established in 1789 and 1816, and without further delay, make provision for the payments of our obligations at as early a period as may be practicable. The fruits of their labor should be enjoyed by our citizens rather than used to build up and sustain moneyed monopolies in our own and other lands. Our foreign debt is already computed by the Secretary of the Treasury at $850 million. Citizens of foreign countries receive interest upon a large portion of our securities, and American taxpayers are made to contribute large sums for their support. The idea that such a debt is to become permanent should be at all times discarded as involving taxation too heavy to be borne, and payment once in every 16 years at the present rate of interest of an amount equal to the original sum. 
this vast debt if permitted to become permanent and increasing must eventually be gathered into the hands of a few and enable them to exert a dangerous and controlling power in the affairs of the government the borrowers would become servants to the lenders the lenders the masters of the people we now pride ourselves upon having given freedom to four million of the colored race it will then be our shame that forty million of people by their own toleration of usurpation and profligacy have suffered themselves to become enslaved and merely exchanged slave owners for new taskmasters in the shape of bondholders and tax gatherers besides permanent debts pertain to monarchical governments and tending to monopolies perpetuities and class legislation are totally irreconcilable with free institutions introduced into our republican system they would gradually but surely sap its foundations eventually subvert our governmental fabric and erect upon its ruins a moneyed aristocracy it is our sacred duty to transmit unimpaired to our posterity the blessings of liberty which were bequeathed to us by the founders of the republic and by our example teach those who are to follow us carefully to avoid the dangers which threaten a free and independent people various plans have been proposed for the payment of the public debt however they may have varied as to the time and mode in which it should be redeemed there seems to be a general concurrence as to the propriety and justness of a reduction in the present rate of interest the secretary of the treasury in his report recommends five per cent congress in a bill passed prior to adjournment on the twenty seventh of july last agreed upon four and four and a half per cent while by many three per cent has been held to be an amply sufficient return for the investment the general impression as to the exorbitancy of the existing rate of interest has led to an inquiry in the public mind respecting the consideration which the government has actually received for its bonds and the conclusion is becoming prevalent that the amount which is obtained was in real money three or four hundred per cent less than the obligations which it issued in return it cannot be denied that we are paying an extravagant percentage for the use of the money borrowed which was paper currency greatly depreciated below the value of coin this fact is made apparent when we consider that bondholders receive from the treasury upon each dollar they own in government securities six per cent in gold which is nearly or quite equal to nine per cent in currency that the bonds are then converted into capital for the national banks upon which those institutions issue their circulation bearing six per cent interest and that they are exempt from taxation by the government and the states and thereby enhanced two per cent in the hands of the holders we thus have an aggregate of seventeen per cent which may be received upon each dollar by the owners of government securities a system that produces such results is justly regarded as favoring a few at the expense of the many and has led to the further inquiry whether our bondholders in view of the large profits which they have enjoyed would themselves be averse to a settlement of our indebtedness upon a plan which would yield them a fair remuneration and at the same time be just to the taxpayers of the nation our national credit should be sacredly observed but in making provision for our creditors we should not forget what is due to the masses of the people it may be assumed that the holders of our securities have already received upon their bonds a larger amount than their original investment measured by a gold standard 
upon this statement of facts it would seem but just and equitable that the six per cent interest now paid by the government should be applied to the reduction of the principal in semi-annual installments which in sixteen years and eight months would liquidate the entire national debt six per cent in gold would at present rates be equal to nine per cent in currency and equivalent to the payment of the debt one and a half times in a fraction less than seventeen years this in connection with all the other advantages derived from their investment would afford the public creditors a fair and liberal compensation for the use of their capital and with this they should be satisfied the lessons of the past admonish the lender that it is not well to be over-anxious in exacting from the borrower rigid compliance with the letter of the bond. If provision be made for the payment of indebtedness of the government in the manner suggested, our nation will rapidly recover its wanted prosperity. Its interests require that some measure should be taken to release the large amount of capital invested in the securities of the government. It is not now merely unproductive, but in taxation annually consumes $150 million, which would otherwise be used by our enterprising people in adding to the wealth of the nation our commerce which at one time successfully rivaled that of the great maritime powers has rapidly diminished and our industrial interests are in a depressed and languishing condition the development of our inexhaustible resources is checked and the fertile fields of the south are becoming waste for want of means to till them with the release of capital new life would be infused into the paralyzed energies of our people and activity and vigor imparted to every branch of industry our people need encouragement in their efforts to recover from the effects of the rebellion and of injudicious legislation and it should be the aim of the government to stimulate them by the prospect of an early release from the burdens which impede their prosperity if we cannot take the burdens from their shoulders we should at least manifest a willingness to help bear them in referring to the condition of the circulating medium i shall merely reiterate substantially that portion of my last annual message which relates to that subject the proportion which the currency of any country should bear to the whole value of the annual produce circulated by its means is a question upon which political economists have not agreed nor can it be controlled by legislation but must be left to the irrevocable laws which everywhere regulate commerce and trade the circulating medium will ever irresistibly flow to those points where it is in greatest demand the law of demand and supply is as unerring as that which regulates the tides of the ocean and indeed currency like the tides has its ebbs and flows through the commercial world at the beginning of the rebellion the banknote circulation of the country amounted to not much more than two hundred million dollars now the circulation of national bank notes and those known as legal tenders is nearly seven hundred millions while it is urged by some that this amount should be increased others contend that a decided reduction is absolutely essential to the best interests of the country in view of those diverse opinions it may be well to ascertain the real value of our paper issues when compared with a metallic or convertible currency for this purpose let us inquire how much gold and silver could be purchased by the seven hundred millions of paper money now in circulation probably not more than half the amount of the latter showing that when our paper currency is compared with gold and silver its commercial value is compressed into three hundred and fifty millions 
this striking fact makes it the obvious duty of the government as early as may be consistent with the principles of sound political economy to take such measures as will enable the holders of its notes and those of the national banks to convert them without loss into specie or its equivalent a reduction of our paper circulating medium need not necessarily follow this however would depend upon the law of demand and supply though it should be borne in mind that by making legal tender and banknotes convertible into coin or its equivalent their present specie value in the hands of the holders would be enhanced one hundred per cent legislation for the accomplishment of a result so desirable is demanded by the highest public considerations the constitution contemplates that the circulating medium of the country shall be uniform in quality and value at the time of the formation of that instrument the country had just emerged from the war of the revolution and was suffering from the effects of a redundant and worthless paper currency the sages of that period were anxious to protect the posterity from the evils which they themselves had experienced hence in providing a circulating medium they conferred upon congress the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof at the same time prohibiting the states from making anything but gold and silver a tender in payment of debts the anomalous condition of our currency is in striking contrast with that which was originally designed our circulation now embraces first notes of the national banks which are made receivable for all dues to the government excluding imposts and by all its creditors excepting in payment of interest upon its bonds and the securities themselves second legal tender issued by the united states and which the law requires shall be received as well in payment of all debts between citizens as of all government dues excepting imposts and third gold and silver coin by the operation of our present system of finance however the metallic currency when collected is reserved only for one class of government creditors who holding its bonds semi-annually receive their interest in coin from the national treasury there is no reason which will be accepted as satisfactory by the people why those who defend us on the land and protect us on the sea the pensioner upon the gratitude of the nation bearing the scars and wounds received while in its service the public servants in the various departments of the government the farmer who supplies the soldiers of the army and the sailors of the navy the artisan who toils in the nation's workshops or the mechanics and laborers who build its edifices and construct its forts and vessels of war should in payment of their just and hard-earned dues receive depreciated paper while another class of their countrymen no more deserving are paid in coin of gold and silver equal and exact justice requires that all the creditors of the government should be paid in a currency possessing a uniform value this can only be accomplished by the restoration of the currency to the standard established by the constitution and by this means we would remove a discrimination which may if it is not already done so create a prejudice that may become deep-rooted and widespread and imperil the national credit the feasibility of making our currency correspond with the constitutional standard may be seen by reference to a few facts derived from our commercial statistics 
the aggregate product of precious metals in the united states from eighteen forty nine to eighteen sixty seven amounted to one trillion one hundred seventy four million dollars while for the same period the net exports of specie were seven hundred forty one million dollars this shows an excess of product over net exports of four hundred thirty three million dollars there are in the treasury one hundred three million four hundred seven thousand nine hundred eighty five dollars in coin in circulation in the states of the pacific coast about forty million dollars and a few millions in the national and other banks in all less than one hundred sixty million dollars taking into consideration the specie in the country prior to eighteen forty nine and that produced since eighteen sixty seven we have more than three hundred million dollars not accounted for by exportation or by returns of the treasury and therefore most probably remaining in the country these are important facts and show how completely the inferior currency will supersede the better forcing it from circulation among the masses and causing it to be exported as a mere article of trade to add to the money capital of foreign lands they show the necessity of retiring our paper money that the return of gold and silver to the avenues of trade may be invited and a demand created which will cause the retention at home of at least so much of the productions of our rich and inexhaustible gold-bearing fields as may be sufficient for purposes of circulation it is unreasonable to expect a return to a sound currency so long as the government and banks by continuing to issue irredeemable notes fill the channels of circulation with depreciated paper notwithstanding a coinage by our mints since eighteen forty nine of eight hundred seventy four million dollars the people are now strangers to the currency which was designed for their use and benefit and specimens of the precious metals bearing the national device are seldom seen except when produced to gratify the interest excited by their novelty if depreciated paper is to be continued as the permanent currency of the country and all our coin is to become a mere article of traffic and speculation to the enhancement in price of all that is indispensable to the comfort of the people it would be wise economy to abolish our mints thus saving the nation the care and expense incident to such establishments and let our precious metals be exported in bullion the time has come however when the government and national banks should be required to take the most efficient steps and make all necessary arrangements for resumption of specie payments let specie payments once be earnestly inaugurated by the government and banks and the value of the paper circulation would directly approximate a specie standard specie payments having been resumed by the government and banks all notes or bills of paper issued by either of a less denomination than twenty dollars should by law be excluded from circulation so that the people may have the benefit and convenience of a gold and silver currency which in all their business transactions will be uniform in the value at home and abroad every man of property or industry every man who desires to preserve what he honestly possesses or to obtain what he can honestly earn has a direct interest in maintaining a safe circulating medium such a medium as shall be real and substantial not liable to vibrate with opinions not subject to be blown up or blown down by the breath of speculation but to be made stable and secure 
A disordered currency is one of the greatest political evils. It undermines the virtues necessary for the support of the social system and encourages propensities destructive of its happiness. It wars against industry, frugality, and economy, and it fosters the evil spirits of extravagance and speculation. It has been asserted by one of our profound and most gifted statesmen that of all the contrivances for cheating the laboring classes of mankind, none has been more effectual than that which deludes them with paper money. This is the most effectual of inventions to fertilize the rich man's fields by the sweat of the poor man's brow. Ordinary tyranny, oppression, excessive taxation, these bear lightly on the happiness of the mass of the community compared with the fraudulent currency and the robberies committed by the depreciated paper. Our own history has recorded for our instruction enough, and more than enough, of the demoralizing tendency, the injustice, and the intolerable oppression on the virtuous and well-disposed of a degraded paper currency, authorized by law or in any way countenanced by government. It is one of the most successful devices in times of peace or war of expansions or revulsions to accomplish the transfer of all the precious metals from the great mass of the people into the hands of the few where they are hoarded in secret places or deposited under bolts and bars while the people are left to endure all the inconvenience sacrifice and demoralization resulting from the use of depreciated and worthless paper the secretary of the interior in his report gives valuable information in reference to the interests confided to the supervision of his department and reviews the operations of the land office pension office patent office and indian bureau during the fiscal year ending june thirtieth eighteen sixty eight six million six hundred fifty five thousand seven hundred acres of public land were disposed of the entire cash receipts of the general land office for the same period were one million six hundred thirty two thousand seven hundred forty five dollars being greater by two hundred eighty four thousand eight hundred eighty three dollars than the amount realized from the same sources during the previous year the entries under the homestead law cover two million three hundred twenty eight thousand nine hundred twenty three acres nearly one-fourth of which was taken under the act of june twenty one eighteen sixty six which applies only to the states of alabama mississippi louisiana arkansas and florida on the thirtieth of june eighteen sixty eight one hundred sixty nine thousand six hundred forty three names were born on the pension rolls and during the year ending on that day the total amount paid for pensions including the expenses of disbursement was twenty four million ten thousand nine hundred eighty two dollars being five million three hundred ninety one thousand twenty five dollars greater than that expended for like purposes during the preceding year during the year ending the thirtieth of september last the expenses of the patent office exceeded the receipts by one hundred seventy one dollars and including reissues and designs fourteen thousand one hundred fifty three patents were issued end of section ten recording by pete mckelvin